Back in 2009, when I became a Canadian citizen, at the ceremony, it was required that the following oath be made or sworn or affirmed. This is the wording. I want to read it to you. I swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors, and that I will faithfully observe the laws of Canada, including the Constitution, which recognizes and affirms the Aboriginal and Treaty rights of First Nations, Inuit and Métis people, and fulfill my duties as a Canadian citizen. The first part of that oath, relating to Queen Elizabeth II, is a portion I really had to think through as an adult. You see, as a boy growing up in Scotland, I hadn't looked favorably upon the royal family. I grew up under the shadow of a monument to William Wallace, who was an arch-patriot who fought for Scottish independence. I lived not too far away from Stirling Castle, which was the site of historic battles between the Scots and the English, and I remember regularly driving through a place called Bannockburn, where in 1314 Robert the Bruce, King of Scotland, led the last major victory of the Scots over the English. Those were the sights and stories of my childhood, reinforced by many, many watchings of the movie Braveheart, along with school and family trips to castles and museums. And no joke, I actually used to listen to Mel Gibson's speech in the movie Braveheart before I played soccer games to get myself pumped up. And so I probably could recite most of it to you. Now, in addition to all of this, there were many around me who actually held a measure of contempt for England in particular and the royal family especially. Add to this that my background was Scottish Catholic, whereas the Queen is the defender and of the faith and supreme governor of the Church of England. And while this might sound silly to some and perhaps sad to others, it was deeply influential. So when the time came for me to become a Canadian, the oath that I would take as a Protestant Christian adult was at serious odds with my Scottish Catholic boyhood. And obviously, you want to ensure that you, you let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so the question that was posed to me was, would I actively swear allegiance to the queen? Now, my thinking as a youth, uh, as an adult, didn't take a tremendous amount of time to dispense with as an adult. And I happily took the oath and thanked God for the gift of living in this beautiful country. But it did require some intentional thought as to where allegiance is lie. Why do I tell you all of this? To show how strong people's responses, rightly or wrongly, can be to kings and queens, or if you prefer, prime ministers and presidents. And if this is true of earthly monarchs, if this is true of earthly rulers, well then how much more so with regards to King Jesus who claims to be eternally sovereign and supreme over everything and everyone, including every single one of us in this room. So as we come to the last chapter in our story of Christmas series, we each come face to face with this question, what is our response to the birth of Jesus, the shepherd king? The passage that we're about to read covers the entire spectrum. And I hope that it's clear enough so that at the end of our time together this morning, you're able to see where you lie. And so ask the question and seek to answer honestly, what is my response to the birth of Jesus, the shepherd king? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2 in your Bibles, if you would, or page 807, if you're using the blue Bibles that are provided there for you. So Matthew 2, or page 807. And we are going to read the first 12 verses of this second chapter of Matthew's Gospel. 
which I like how Caleb put it on Christmas Eve. It's one of the biographies that we have about the Lord Jesus. So Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12, page 807. But before we read this together as we're handling God's Word and we can't understand it without the help of the Holy Spirit, let's take a moment to pray and ask for divine assistance before we read and work our way through these verses. Let's pray. Lord God, absolutely nothing that would transpire of any meaning from the preaching of your word can be done by my power or my wisdom or my strength. This is not how you accomplish your purposes in the world. It is not by might. It is not by wisdom. But it is by your spirit. And so you have said, and so we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit this morning that you would aid us in our hearing of the Word of God so that it would produce transformation in the lives of people, that it would result in the salvation of some because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God about Jesus Christ. And so do your saving work, we pray, and do your transforming, transforming work in those who already are saved. And do it by your Spirit for your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name, and all of God's people say, Amen. Matthew 2, then, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, this is the prophet Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And this again, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, at this point in the Christmas story, almost everything that we typically read about or sing about has already taken place. And as we come to Matthew again this morning with the visit of the angel to Mary behind us and Mary going to see Elizabeth and Jesus' birth in Bethlehem and his being taken to the temple uh, to be presented as the firstborn. After all of that has taken place, we fast forward in Matthew 2.1, which tells us now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Despite what many nativity displays show, there doesn't seem to be any reason to place wise men or magi at the manger scene. A period of time has passed. Joseph has secured a place for his wife and this newborn shepherd king to stay. And as this has happened, lines are now beginning to be drawn on where people stand with Jesus, even early on in his life. Now, before we consider the response, our response, and I'm going to ask two follow-up questions uh, to discern where we land with respect to Jesus, before we get to that, we need to get to the heart of this passage. 
the shape of these 12 verses, if you can just bear with me for a moment to get technical, and I'll explain it. The shape of these 12 verses is what we call a chiasm or a chiastic structure. Now, this is a literary device sometimes used by biblical writers to highlight their main focus. Think of it as the ancient world putting on the caps lock if you're sending someone a message because you want to yell at them through your text. Or if you want to bold something or underline something, you do that because you want people to pay attention to something very particular. And in a chiastic structure, that's what happens. And understanding them, uh, we have to understand how they work so that we can see what is to be emphasized. And what is emphasized in a chiastic structure is what's in the middle. And sometimes this is really easy to see in the Bible, and sometimes this is harder to see in the Bible. And even though I've preached this passage before, I didn't see it until my Greek professor, Dr. Wayne Baxter, pointed this out, and I happily credit him for the insight here. He's a good man. He's an elder at Temple, our sister church up the street, and I've, uh, I've appreciated his ministry this last semester. So I want you to just to follow with me for a minute at the outline here of these 12 verses. Okay? And we're going to start at the top of verse 1, and we're going to start at 12, verse 12, and we're going to work our way in to see where the middle of this passage is. So in verse 1, you'll see the Magi, they come. In verse 12, the Magi leave. That's a pair. Verse 1, they come. Verse 12, they leave. In verse 2, the Magi have followed a star, and they have come to worship. And then in verses 9 to 11, we read there that the Magi follow a star again, and they end up actually worshiping. So they come and they go. They follow a star to worship. They follow a star to worship. Keep moving in. In verses 3 to 4, we read about King Herod, who is troubled at this news. And so what does he do? He gathers together all of the chief priests and all of the scribes to get their expertise on where this Christ is supposed to be born. And then in verses 7 and 8, Herod summons the wise men to inquire about the star that points to the Christ. Those are a pair. So the wise men come, they go. They follow a star to worship. They follow a star to worship. Herod is troubled, and he gathers the scribes and the, the chief priests, and then Herod gathers the wise men. Each of these have a pair. What doesn't is what's in the middle, which we find in verses 5 and 6. And Matthew wants us to zero in on the words of the prophet that speak about the birth and the birthplace of Jesus. And so there they told him, that is the experts in the Bible, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. A ruler who will shepherd a shepherd king. And to this God's word has always pointed. Not only does the ripple effect of Jesus' birth prove he is king of kings and lord of lords, his fulfillment of scripture does as well. And we've already seen a couple weeks ago, Matthew was eager to highlight the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, of things that were written about him hundreds of years before he was born. And Matthew does this at least ten times explicitly. And there are literally hundreds of more of prophetic writings, all having their loose ends tied up in the person of Jesus. And here it is with regards to where he was born. The Bible says he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This is a shout out to, this is the ruler who will shepherd. This is the shepherd king. But sometimes people ask about these prophecies, are they just a coincidence? Well, Louis Lapides says, not a chance. This is a man who was a Christian convert from Judaism, and he says the odds are so astronomical of Jesus fulfilling prophecy that they rule this out. Someone has done the math, and some of you might have heard this before. Someone has done the math, and they estimate that the probability of just eight prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus is one chance in 100 million billion. 
That's more people, more than any, than the, the total number of people who have ever walked the planet. Now, what if you take that up a, a, a little bit? Uh, if, uh, what if, uh, how does that work? Like, let me give you an illustration. The same person calculated that if you took this number of toonies, you know, those things that bang around in your pocket or in your dash or whatever, if you took that number, uh, the, the same number of toonies, a hundred million billion, and you spread them out over the province of Ontario, they would go up to your shins. And suppose you marked one toonie of all of those toonies, and then you blindfolded someone and sent them out into the province of Ontario and said, I want you to find the marked toonie. The same odds that anyone could do that are the same odds that anyone in history could have fulfilled just eight of these biblical prophecies that Jesus fulfills. Scientist Peter Stone estimated that the probability of fulfilling 48 prophecies was one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. Our minds just can't think of a number that is that size. And Jesus checks these boxes of prophetic writings hundreds of years prior to his birth. And if you are not a Christian, you have to contend with that fact. And for the Christian, this only enlarges our confidence in the trustworthiness of God's word, does it not, brothers and sisters? Even though there may be hundreds or thousands of years between prophecy given and prophecy fulfilled, when God speaks, he is true to his word, and what he says is good, is as good as done. And if you're not, if you are taking this in and you are not a Christian, but you're investigating the claims of Christianity, Maybe you're even close to the point of believing in Jesus. I hope that you see this as compelling evidence to tip the scales towards repenting of your sin and believing in him and being baptized as one of his followers. There is every reason to trust in God's word and trust in God's king who offers to lead you and nourish you and protect you until you are safely in his presence dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. So come to Him in faith right now where you are. Trust in this shepherd king who is the fulfillment of God's word. At the same time, brothers and sisters, King Jesus' fulfillment of these prophecies enlarge our confidence in the kind of ruler that has been given to us. One, Micah said, would shepherd his people Israel and which in the New Covenant we understand to be both Jew and Gentile because not only is, the is he the shepherd of my people Israel, but we have Gentiles from the East coming to worship him. And so we understand that Jew and Gentile are brought together in the person of Christ. But as regards this shepherding aspect that Brian set a really good uh, foundation for us in reading Ezekiel, as regards this, I want to just trace out a few aspects of this theme of Jesus as shepherd king. And Tim Laniak does this in his book, Shepherds After My Own Heart, and so I'm leaning on him here. But listen to a few verses from later on in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew 9.36, so Matthew 9.36, this is what we read about Jesus during his ministry. You can just listen or you can turn, that's up to you. Matthew 9.36 says this, When Jesus saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Tim Laniak writes, it's not simply human need that moves Jesus, but their predicament as a flock not properly led, like those helpless sheep on the hills of Switzerland at the mercy of the wolves. Laniak says, without good leadership, this crowd is troubled and downcast. And right before we're told that Jesus sees this, uh, the people and has compassion upon them, we're told that he was going throughout all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Leadership cannot happen without faithful teaching and preaching, which is one of the ways that Jesus had compassion as the shepherd king uh, in this passage. A little bit later in Matthew, Matthew 14, 14. That's Matthew 14, 14. 
we read of a shepherd king who not only desires to lead his people, but who desires to care for his people. Listen to what it says there. When Jesus heard about the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowd heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And again, listen, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. This shepherd king who taught and who proclaimed the gospel to lead his people, he also took care of people's diseases. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He fed the hungry. All as indications to us of what life will one day look like when his kingdom comes in all of its fullness. This is him saying to us, this is the kind of shepherd that I am, and this is what it looks like to live under my rule and under my reign. He is the shepherd king. Now further to this leadership and this care are also his righteous end time judgments. In Matthew 25, Verses 31 to 32. So Matthew 25, 31 to 32. Jesus tells us this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. He is a shepherd. He is a king. And it says, Before Him will be gathered all the nations, everyone who has ever lived, and it says, he tells us, he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He goes on and says, he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And we enter in by faith in the shepherd king. And then it tell, he tells us he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the judgment for those who reject the shepherd king. So he has compassion to lead his people. He has compassion to heal and provide and protect and nurture his people. And he is also the shepherd king who will rule and who will make righteous judgments at the end of all things. And this is the supremacy and authority of the shepherd king that people begin to bristle under. But this is who he is. And this is his right. And he will make these judgments. And so Matthew shows us from the outset that Jesus is the shepherd king and he unfolds that throughout his gospel. And that's the heart of these 12 verses. And now that we have that before us, that Jesus is this shepherd king, highlighted by the way Matthew writes, now we're ready to see and understand why it is that people respond differently to his birth. And so this brings us to the first of our follow-up questions. Are we drawn to this shepherd king or are we troubled by this shepherd king? On the one hand, we have this caravan of non-Jews traveling a great distance to worship Jesus, the shepherd king. And then on the other hand, we witness a king of the Jewish people disturbed by the birth of Jesus, the shepherd king. And so we have to ask, are we drawn to the shepherd king, or are we troubled by this shepherd king? Some are drawn. As these strange unknown magi travel who knows how far before the days of Ubers and airplanes to worship an infant king. Behold, look, see, Matthew writes, these Gentiles coming from the east to Jerusalem to worship the one born king of the Jews. And if you've been with us in our Genesis series, we've been learning that eastward uh, there's a biblical significance to the compass direction these men come from. Uh, in Genesis, eastward direction is movement away from God. This is not the direction you want to be moving in. 
But here, and that's a great thread to, to trace out, and if you want a bunch of references, tell me. I don't have time to get into it this morning as much as I want to, and it pains me not to, but you're welcome. You can go enjoy your Boxing Day a little bit earlier. But here, what we have isn't people moving eastward. We have people from the east traveling westward to worship the one who alone can lead us back into the presence of God. It's remarkable. And to this shepherd king that Micah prophesied would come from Bethlehem, these wise men have been drawn to. We have we saw his star and it, when it rose, and we have come to worship him in verse 2. So just as the light of the glory of God on the tabernacle led God's covenant people through the wilderness to the promised land, a heavenly light has led this band of Gentiles to God's anointed king, the promised one who would lead us back into his presence. And so in this supernatural phenomenon of westward traveling Gentiles from the east, we recognize that God's intention is for all. No matter where you're from, no matter the color of your skin, no matter what language you speak, God's intention is for everyone to recognize the rule and reign of the shepherd king. And the ripple effect of his birth has not ceased, but has continued and will continue until either in glad submission or unavoidable subjection, all will recognize the reign of Jesus. And so are we drawn to him as these men were? Or are we troubled by him as others were? Though he's only an infant at this point, the first human king that is to hear about the birth of Jesus is greatly unsettled. And it's been said of Herod that when he was troubled, all of Jerusalem was troubled with him because he was quite a vicious ruler. And he is deeply troubled by the appearance of these uh, magi from the east. Herod was an Edomite. He was not a Jew, ethnically. And had, he had been made king by the Romans. And someone says the news that the Magi were bringing sounded suspiciously like the emergence of a genuine descendant of the royal line of David as a claimant to the throne. And if this was true, Herod the non-Jew, who was claiming to be king was because of the Romans, if this was true, if someone was being raised up to be king, it means that Herod would no longer soon have a throne to sit on. And like every rebellious, sinful human, Herod wanted to be the king and ruler of his own universe, and for good measure, for as many other people's universes as he could get his hands on. His ambition was lofty. His accomplishments were actually, they were great, but his means of getting there were terrible. He was a very wicked man. He had his brother-in-law, Aristobulus, the high priest, drowned. After that, he killed his own wife, two of his sons. And five days before his death, about a year after Jesus was born, he killed a third of his sons. Another evidence, I quote, of his bloodthirstiness and insane cruelty was having the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem arrested and imprisoned shortly before his death. Because he knew that no one would mourn his own death, he gave orders for those prisoners to be executed the moment he died in order to guarantee that there would be mourning in Jerusalem. There could not be a greater contrast, could there, between this one who claimed to be king of the Jews, Herod, and the shepherd king, Jesus. But anyone who sets themselves up as a rival to Jesus ought to be troubled. But there are also those who are troubled by Jesus in a very different way. There's an indifference here. And we should pay careful attention to the religious CEOs and the Bible PhDs that Matthew writes about here, the chief priests and the scribes. They knew exactly where God's promised king would be born. And at this point, there's no indication at all suggesting that they believed that Jesus was the one. What did they do about the fact that people were claiming the coming king had finally arrived? Gentiles, no less? Nothing. They didn't do anything. They just seemed to be indifferent. Their response was just an unholy, spiritual, eh, whatever. And herein lies a potential danger to those who have spent a lot of time around the Bible or church or hearing about spiritual things. Boys and girls, Young men and young women, you might have grown up here in our church. You might have grown up in another church somewhere else. 
You might have heard dad and mom talk to you many, many, many times about the Lord Jesus and your need to repent and trust Him. You maybe have been through Sunday school or youth group or you might be able to know where to turn in the Bible to find answers to all sorts of spiritual questions, but at the end of the day, the difference that this has made in your life might be absolutely zero. Like these religious experts, they knew a lot. But they were not drawn to the shepherd king. If that's a description of you, I just want to take a moment to warn you, friend, that you are in grave danger. Because indifference towards Jesus, someone has said, is simply hatred that is concealed and rejection that is delayed. If you are not for Jesus, you're against Him. There's no middle ground. And though you may not think you are so terrible to sit quietly on the fence, your spiritual indifference and stubbornness places you on the same pathway as that of King Herod. And I hope that comparison will shock you and alarm you to respond rightly to Jesus. Which brings us to our second follow-up question. Are we hostile to the shepherd king or are we worshipers of this shepherd king? The trajectory of those who are troubled eventually becomes outright animosity. The trajectory of those who are drawn eventually becomes sheer and utter adoration. So are we hostile to the shepherd king or are we worshipers of this shepherd king. Of all that we have mentioned of King Herod so far, we have not yet uncovered the worst. Part of the ripple effect of the birth of the shepherd king is kings of the earth conspiring against Jesus. Herod called the wise men to a meeting under false pretense, if you see there in verses 7 and 8. He calls them secretly. He doesn't want anyone to know and he wants to find out from them when the, the time of the star had appeared. He's trying to get a sense of when did this birth happen. And then he sends them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. Well, we know that this is just a blatant lie. Because Matthew tells us a few short verses later, what happens when the wise men don't return. And what Herod does next is in the spirit of Psalm 2, verses 2 and 3, which says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is how Herod does this. As Matthew writes in verse 16 of our chapter, which we didn't read, says Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. If you were with us last Sunday morning or if you watched online last Sunday morning, you would have seen at the beginning of our service we took a moment, and, and, and I'm so glad we did. We took a moment to just have all of those in our church family who had welcomed little ones into their homes uh, who had been born uh, in this last couple of years. Just because there's been a lot of in and out and lockdowns, and we just hadn't had a chance to see and celebrate that as we should. And so you had all of these moms and dads with little ones who were old enough to walk or uh, ones they're holding in their arms, and you saw their faces, and you saw their smiles, and you saw one of them take Tom's mask and snap it back if you were paying attention, which was just hilarious. And you heard their dadas, and you saw the joy in the mums and dads' faces. Uh, that's what we saw. Those are the ones that Herod vented his wrath upon. 
dispatching soldiers to run them through with swords because he had so much hatred at the thought of someone else being king instead of himself. What is that? Madness. Can you imagine if that had happened and we show up to church the next Sunday to just be in the presence of those parents? No wonder Matthew quoted there was weeping. This is madness. And where does it stem from? It's nothing more and nothing less than the cosmic conflict that began on the day God spoke to the serpent in the Garden of Eden and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. One of my favorite Christmas songs is called This is War. This is war on sin and death. The dark will take its final breath, but its final inhale is vicious and it is full of hatred towards God's anointed king. Herod, an agent of the prince of darkness, acting as one of Satan's very offspring, takes up the devil's cause in the attempt to kill the shepherd king, still believing the lie that the serpent told to Adam and Eve in the garden, you shall be like God. And while we may not have committed infanticide in an effort to remain the captains of our own souls, the difference between our sinful rebellion if we continue to reject Christ and Herod's sinful rebellion is only of degree. It is not of kind. Opposition to Jesus as a ripple effect of his birth, I believe, actually demonstrates the truthfulness of his claim to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is it really any surprise that the most harassed people in human history are God's covenant people, the Jewish people? Doesn't it ever strike you as significant that collectively the most persecuted people on the planet this very day are Christians? The legitimacy of Christ's universal kingship is evidenced by the strength of humanity's opposition to his rule and reign, especially by those who are drunk with power and position. Just think of the sinful madness of what we are rejecting when we resist the rule and reign of the shepherd king. It's a reign of love and a reign of joy and a reign of peace and of forgiveness and mercy and comfort and grace and eternal life and rest and having God as our Father. And a future hope of a new heavens and a new earth that is devoid of evil and sin and sickness and Satan and death. That's what life will be like under the reign of the shepherd king in the kingdom of God. And he is willing to grant that to us. Even though we are rebels. As a gift of grace to be received through faith. As we trust his substitutionary death on the cross confessing that He is Lord and believing in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead. Accepting the reign of this incarnate, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and soon coming King is how we experience His clemency. The story is told of the great British Admiral Lord Nelson. I like the story. I've told it before. He was known for treating vanquished opponents with courtesy and kindness. And after one naval victory... A defeated officer, he strode confidently against the quarterdeck of Nelson's ship and uh, he, uh, he extended his hand to put it into the hand of the admiral to acknowledge his surrender. And Nelson kept his own hand at his side and he said, your sword first, sir, and then your hand. Before we can be Christ's friends, we must be his subjects. What does such a response look like? What does it look like to be a subject of King Jesus? Well, it's in stark contrast to the religious experts' indifference 
which would later match Herod's murderous rejection, the response that we ought to have is found in those who came from the east. Boys and girls, again, you might be able to understand this better than anyone else. Just two days ago, it was Christmas Eve, and you went to bed, and maybe you lay in your bed for a long time and you found it really hard to fall asleep because you just couldn't wait for the sun to come up, or maybe you didn't wait for the sun to come up. Maybe you got up at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock, or, and you run into mom and dad's room because you want them to get up, and you want to race downstairs, and you want to open your presents. And yesterday, finally you got to do that. Adults, I hope that you can remember that feeling from when you were a kid, that feeling of anticipation, of something longed for, hoped for, dreamed for, finally realized. Such were these wise men who traveled a great distance looking for King Jesus. They'd made it all the way to Jerusalem, no doubt talking along the way about what they would discover and checking their packs to make sure the gifts they have brought are still secure. And then they speak with the current king of the Jews, who seems to know very little, as do the rest of the Jewish people, about this one whose star has been so clearly visible to them. So they ask around, and they go to a secret meal with Herod, and now they're directed to the city of Bethlehem. And the star that has led them the whole way appears again to them in verse 9. And finally, finally, after all that time and all that distance, it stops at their destination. And so it's no wonder that they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. In verse 10, the shepherd king, he is there. He is right inside the house. They will finally see him with their own eyes. They will look on his face, the one who is the object of their worship, and that fills them with so much joyful anticipation that they are fit to burst. brings Peter's words to mind. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That is what the prospect of beholding Jesus the Shepherd King who came to save does to us. He multiplies joy for the nations who are drawn, who come to be glad in Him. He is that thrill of hope that causes the weary world to rejoice. Brothers and sisters, though we have traveled, so to speak, a long way in our own lives, the batteries are low, as Brian put it. Though we might be wiped out from the twists and turns of living in a groaning creation and groaning bodies under the weight of the curse, at the end of our journey is the shepherd king. Every dogged mile will be worth it. Every uncomfortable night will be worth it. Every tiring day will be worth it. Every sigh from another uphill struggle will be worth it. Every up and down of the COVID roller coaster will be worth it because we are going to get to see the Shepherd King. And because we are going to get to see Him, that prospect causes joy to well up within us. That's what He does to us and for us even now. So, are you exhausted? You're going to see the King. Are you tossing and turning in sleepless worry these days? You are going to see the Shepherd King. Are you beaten down by life in a broken world? You are going to see the King. Are you aching from the sinful actions of others? You are going to see the King. Are you battle-weary from fighting tooth and nail against indwelling sin? You are going to see the King. The guiding star of the indwelling Spirit will lead us to the Father's house where His anointed King has prepared a place for us and we will be with Him forever, living under His glorious and gracious reign in everlasting Sabbath rest. Our King has come to rescue us this shepherd giving us an inkling of what life under his rule shall be like, who died for us, who rose for us, who ascended for us, and who will return for us. Brothers and sisters, meditate meditate upon this until the exceeding joy of that anticipation grips your heart. And though it might not plaster a permanent jeezy grin on your face, it will flood your soul with warmth and delight at the prospect of this joy-multiplying King 
and inevitably worship will follow. Some are drawn, some are troubled, some are hostile. Are we worshipers? Verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This was their intention all along. They came to worship. They told Herod they were looking for the king to worship. When they come before this new-born king, they fall prostrate before this infant ruler. He's a child. And they bow. And Matthew is clear that worship is the fitting response to this one called Jesus. In Matthew 9.18, a ruler comes and falls before Jesus on his knees. In Matthew 14.33, the disciples in the boat worship him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. In Matthew 15.25, the Canaanite woman knelt before him. In John 20.20, the mother of, uh, Matthew 20.20, the mother of John and James came and knelt before him. And in Matthew 28.9, the woman came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped Him, the risen one. And 28.17, when the disciples also saw the resurrected King, what did they do? They worshipped Him. Homage is to be paid to this shepherd King who is King of kings and Lord of lords from the moment of His birth to the present and unto eternity. Whatever the lengths, whatever the cost, this we do with unashamed acknowledgement before others that Jesus is our shepherd King For as the words in Revelation 5 put it, He is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And this we do by humbling ourselves before Him as these magi do. We do this by opening up our treasures to lavish the shepherd king with costly gifts as befit his status. The magi gave a gift of gold, the most precious of metal and the metal of kings. He gave a gift of frankincense, which someone has says was used in temple worship. And so in presenting this gift, the wise men pointed to Christ as our great high priest. The same can be said of myrrh, which, again, I quote, was used for embalming. By any human measure, it would be odd, if not offensive, to present to the infant Christ the spice used for embalming. But it was not offensive in this case, nor was it odd. The Old Testament again and again foretold his suffering. James Montgomery Boyce writes that there is a sense in which by faith we too may present our gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. How so? With respect to myrrh, we offer to lay down our lives for the one who laid down his for us. Not as a paying back, as though we could uh, make up for what Jesus has given for us, but out of gratitude because of the cross death that Jesus endured hanging as he did with the sign above his head that was mocking yet accurate king of the Jews. Our king died for us. And so we ought to live as though dead to sin and alive to righteousness, as living sacrifices, making sacrifices of praise because of what he's done. With respect to frankincense, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, having been made new creatures by the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And that's a dedication to good works. We have been given good works, prepared for us in advance as His workmanship in Christ Jesus. And so we are to engage in them. Read Titus 3 if you're looking for specifics on what those good works look like as those who belong to Christ. And finally, we come with our gold, which symbolizes royalty. So when you come with your gold, you acknowledge the right of Christ to rule your life. You say, I am your servant. You are my master. Direct my life and lead me in it so that I might grow up spiritually to honor and serve you accordingly. This is what it looks like to be a worshiper of this shepherd king. And we should realize that any other response is both foolish and futile because God will protect 
the shepherd king. He will ensure that the shepherd king will reign. We are told as much in verse 12 of our passage. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, these wise men, these magi, they departed to their own country by another way. It would seem that Though wise, these men were unable to see through Herod's skillful deceit. But before God, all is laid bare. And in the spirit of Psalm 2, as we saw, Herod responds to God's anointed king. Yet according to Psalm 2, God responds to King Herod's efforts to dispose of King Jesus. This is what it says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who is going to undo the reign and rule of the shepherd king? No one. Herod the Great can't lay a finger on this child, for God the Father will forever establish the rule and reign of the shepherd king. And so a dream redirects the Magi. An angel is later dispatched to instruct Joseph to flee Herod's impending wrath by taking refuge in Egypt until Herod dies. And as Mary sang, as we saw a few weeks ago, through Jesus, God will scatter the proud and the thoughts of their hearts and bring down the mighty from their thrones. That includes scattering the proud thoughts of any listening to these words. And bringing down of any listening to these words who have set themselves on the throne of their lives rather than the shepherd King Jesus. But rest assured, church, as we close out a new year, an old year, and as we embark upon a new year, the Bible bursts with promises and assurances that the reign of this shepherd king, it will be consummated. In Psalm 110, the Lord announces to David's Lord, who is Jesus, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Apostle Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 15, and he writes of the return of Jesus, which says, Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This Jesus is a king at his birth. He was a king in his life. Uniquely a king in his death. A king in his resurrection. He is enthroned as king at his ascension and king in his second coming and his kingly reign is protected and established by the Lord God Himself. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, the shepherd king. What is your response to Him?